Welcome to The Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental policy brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at ENDS Report. I'm James Ajapong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be covering the latest row between DEFRA and unions over civil service jobs. We'll be wading into Labour's housing plans and the scrub worries Natural England's chair Tony Juniper shares. And we'll also be looking at the next war on wet wipes. A moment of deja vu or the first step towards a ban? For our deep dive, we'll be searching for answers. Will a carbon price lead to an increase in landfill? For this and more, let's enter the Eco DEFRA has been accused by unions of a plan to fire and rehire by stealth with civil servants at the Marine Management Organization unable to transfer from the organization without having to first quit their jobs and so lose employment rights. To help me get to the bottom of the matter, I'm joined by ENS editors Pippa Neal and Tess Colley. So let's first know who we're talking about, Pippa. Who is or what is the MMO? The MMO is an arm's length body of DEFRA, which was created in 2009. Um, And its purpose, according to its website, is to protect and enhance the marine environment and support UK economic growth by enabling sustainable marine activities and development. Um, And the MMO is one of 81 public bodies, which is accredited by the Civil Service Commission, which um, regulates recruitment into the civil service. And this accreditation allows non-departmental public bodies to advertise their vacancies on the civil service jobs website. Um, And it allows for non-departmental public body staff to apply for roles that advertise across the civil service. Okay, okay. So that all seems clear enough. Why are union members at the Marine Management Organisation upset now? According to the trade union PCS, staff from the MMO used to be able to easily move between the body and other civil service roles while still maintaining their job benefits. However, the union has said that since 2018, DEFRA started to block moves and instructed shared services not to allow transfers in or out of the MMO, with members instead needing to resign and restart their employment, losing their accrued employment rights. Um, And according to Civil Service World, who we should say first kind of broke this story, the Civil Service Commission guidance, which was issued in April 2022, clarifies that staff at these accredited non-departmental public bodies should be able to transfer to civil service roles without resigning. So, yeah, that's kind of the crux of the argument. And do we know if DEFRA is following this updated guidance? So Civil Service World reported that an MMO source had told them that DEFRA has, in quotes, unilaterally decided to refuse entry into the civil service via the exception, with no regards to the impact on staff from within these public bodies that had previously transferred from the civil service. But DEFRA maintains the position that the MMO is outside of these civil service rules. Um, and, you know, they, they said that the, the MMO is not a civil service organisation and as such, direct transfers are not possible. And they say this has always been the case. Right. But the PCS union disagrees, right, Tess? Yes, indeed. So the PCS General Secretary Mark Sawata, um, they, you know, this is like the biggest civil service union, uh, told us that 
Defra's repeated message that this has never happened doesn't fit the facts. Uh, he went on to say that Defra continues to interfere with an employer that they say is entirely separate. Uh, and he said that when the MMO was created in 2010, the Marine Bill highlighted no detriment for MMO staff. Uh, and he said it also stated staff should be able to apply for DEFRA vacancies in the same way. Transfers continued with DEFRA up to 2018. And even current jobs being advertised for MMO still talk about working in the civil service. And basically, he says staff should not face a detriment in the future uh, for working in the MMO. Right. And that's it's, it's interesting, isn't it? There's it's it's another example of Defra taking on the unions of its arms length bodies, like Natural England, like Environment Agency, like we've talked about in the podcast. Um, and I guess we'll just have to follow this one onto the next resolution or solution or confrontation. Which brings us on to another story of confrontation, <laughs> and it's all about Natural England's chair Tony Juniper and his concerns over Labour's scrubland policies, which may or may not exist. So I would like to know first, Tess, what are we talking about with Labour's house building plan? So last week at the Labour Party conference, Keir Starmer, who's the leader, revealed the party's plans to see 1.5 million homes built across a five-year period if the if the party's elected in the next general election. Um, and to hit this target, what... What he said was that the, the party would be looking at releasing parts of Greenbelt land, um, including, as he said, disused car parks and dreary wasteland. And he termed this the grey belt. Um, and, you know, he kind of said, look, we're not trying to tear up the green belt. It's just taking these particular places where, you know, it's not that green in the first place. And that's what he said. Um, how yeah, this has been, this has gone on elsewhere. And part of the problem for me was trying to understand with Starmer, is Scrobland part of his grey belt designation? Well, we we don't know for sure. Uh, he did certainly didn't explicitly say anything about Scrubland in his speech. I know we all, you know, on here in his report, wait for Scrubland to be mentioned in party political speeches. Yes, However, yes. yeah, it just it it didn't come this time. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, this is important because it has been reported, and it was reported. And sort of the kind of newspapers uh, in the run up to Starmer's speech actually happening, that scrubland was going to be part of this kind of grey belt designation. And it spooked a few people. And it seems including um, Natural England's chair, Tony Juniper, because he, before the speech, but after these reports posted on on X, do we say X on on the eco chamber, we or are we X. on the Twitter kind of? Well, I'm we on the X have... bandwagon. You you can be on the Twitter bandwagon. I don't mind. Okay, well, on on that social media platform, <laughs> um, he said that you know several reports today dismiss Greenbelt as scrubland, the implication being that development on such land is better than what's there now. Truth is, he said, that expanding scrub is one of the quickest ways we can make progress for nature recovery. Quite worrying. End right. of tweet. Right. Okay. So he is preempting Sir Keir Starmer's speech, which has been trailed by the newspapers to suggest that scrubland will be a part of this grey belt designation to build these 1.5 million homes. Yes. Right. I'm with you. And on the back of that report, there were some pretty strong comments from MPs, right, Pippa, in response to Juniper's uh, outrage on, on Scrobland. Mm. So the Sunday Telegraph's article included comments from the former Housing Secretary, Simon Clark, who 
um, fiercely condemned Juniper for his post. Um, he said that these comments reveal the chairman of Natural England is simply determined to block new homes, period, um, according to the paper, and said, you know, for Mr Juniper to be preaching about the virtue of scrub at a time when soaring prices and rents are pricing so many families out of decent homes, he described as being frankly immoral. Mm. Scrubland, you know, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. And uh, and it wasn't just the Tories who took a pop shot at Juniper either, was it? Labour MP Siobhan McDonough was also quoted in the same news story saying that Tony Juniper should come to her advice surgery on any Friday and that she'll introduce him to the people who are struggling in a one-bedroom flat with four or five children. She said, if you've seen the sites I've seen within the Green Belt, it's quite clear to me that these sites are of no environmental value. Which brings us onto the subject of the environmental value of scrub and perhaps why this is such a heated debate between so-called anti-house builder Juniper and Simon Clarke and Siobhan McDonough. What is the benefit of scrub? So firstly, just to define what scrubland actually is, it's often described as a, as a successional habitat, meaning that it is temporary and in transition between one habitat and another. So it can be a few scattered hawthorn bushes, a patch of nettles and brambles, or like a dense thicket next to a woodland. So it's kind of, yeah, in transition. Um, but according to the Kent Wildlife Trust, it is an extremely valuable habitat and one on which many species depend for their survival. But they did say that, you know, if left unmanaged, it can rapidly take over areas such as grassland and heathland. So, yeah, not all scrubland is equal. Um, and Tess, what sort of shrubs are we talking about here when 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 Pippa's mentioning scrub? We're talking about the big names, James. We're talking about blackthorn, hawthorn, brambles were already mentioned. Um, but it's things, I think broadly, it's things that often people think look a bit messy mm. or a bit untidy. It's a little bit kind of just like people say that's a bit scrubby over there. Um, there's a little bit of a dismissed sort of thing. Um, and it's possibly why it's so valuable for the environment a lot of the time. Not many people will hang out there and do stuff. So there's, um, apart from the fact, obviously, there's a whole variety of different shrubs and, and things. It's it's often left alone. Um, and so, you know, biodiversity can do its thing. Have you guys heard the old forester's expression that the thorn is the mother of the oak? No. There's a lot of wisdom and poetry from foresters, you know. I don't doubt it. The idea being that that closed canopy can provide that protection for, you know, the the trees, the ash, the sycamores, the oaks. And um, and I and I was really I'm really interested to learn, actually, that in patches, that scrub is superb for species like nightingales because mm. um, nothing's in isolation, you know, and 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 too beautifully named, if not slightly brown looking dingy mocha. <laughs> And Barbary carpet moths, which I absolutely love the names of. And they are very beautiful to look at if anyone wants to look them up. Um, yeah. Uh, but also, Juniper loves scrub. Apparently so. So I was very keen to hear how he responded to the attacks mm. that he is anti-house builder. Yeah. Well, he told the Sunday Telegraph that he doesn't regard sharing important information as criticism. Um, and he said that he, you know, he was just raising the importance of scrubland, which he said is a very valuable for wildlife and has a hugely underappreciated role in meeting our 2030 goal to halt the decline of nature. Um, 
And there was also a kind of longer statement that was issued by uh, Natural England in Juniper's name, uh, saying that building homes and protecting the environment is not a binary choice and that done well, the two can be uh, mutually beneficial. And I think the the regulator's been keen to to point out that Natural England advises on thousands of you know developments across the nation each year, um, and that according according to to Natural England, it objects to less than one percent of planning applications, um, and therefore you know it said that it's completely unfounded the idea that protecting nature uh, is preventing us from a build from building those uh, essential house building targets. Um, mm. So. They, you know, a kind of pretty, pretty robust defence. Of course, the context of all this is that we've just had the big nutrient neutrality row, uh, and Tony Juniper wasn't far out of the news then. The, the Sunday Telegraph, he often appears in the in the in those pages, not writing himself, I should say. But it's it's Natural England has come under attack repeatedly over the last few months for the role it plays in uh, making sure that local authorities uh, are following the law and the rules with regards to the environment. So yeah, that's that's the bigger picture here. It's not just about scrubland, as important as scrub is, as we have established. <laughs> so from life-giving scrub to sewer-blocking plastic wet wipes, it seems now that the government wants to ban them. But I'm sure we've been here before. Pippa, what's the story? So the story is that DEFRA has just launched a consultation on its proposed ban on the sale of wet wipes containing plastic. Um, and it's basically just seeking views on how this ban would impact manufacturers, vendors and consumers, in particular disabled people. Um, and it's also looking at the the wider impacts of keeping wet wipes containing plastic and wet wipes marketed as alternative or plastic free in circulation. Okay, and this this is UK. This isn't England. We're talking about yeah, here. across the UK. There is a certain uh, we've been here before moment, Tess, isn't there? Yeah. So a UK wide ban on wet wipes containing plastics was most recently promised in the Plan for Water published in April, but it was first put forward by Theresa May's government in 2018, if you can remember that far back. Mm. Uh, and previous consultations and calls for evidence you know, have been carried out. Uh, since and it's I feel like I've been hearing about wet white bands for forever. Um, mm. So yeah, there there is a bit of of deja vu going on. The campaign group City to See has welcomed the latest proposed ban, but you know said it's long, long overdue. Um, their policy manager Steve Hines said that although we welcome the ban, we we don't believe the wipe. Hmm. Good one, Steve. Um, the ban could and should have been introduced years ago, he said. And when you combine this with the clear and compelling environmental harm these products do, I am not sure what else the government is waiting for. So mm. there you go. Okay, so it might seem obvious, but can you give us a breakdown of the plastic wet white problem? Pepper? Yeah, so there's quite a few problems with them. So firstly is that they contain microplastics. So when they break down, that's kind of leaching microplastics into the environment, which may be harmful to the environment or also to human health. But according to Water UK, 75% of drain blockages are caused by people flushing plastic wet wipes down the toilets, um, which is kind of having an impact on our sewage and sewage systems. And according to the Marine Conservation Society, wet wipes were found on 62% of UK beaches in 2022, with over 38,000 collected. So it's a yeah, pretty mad. huge numbers. I was so, so surprised to read that 
you know, the majority of those wet wipes were from Scotland, which just shows you how far they can travel. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a huge problem. And people in London, listeners might might have heard about the Thames Great Wet Wipe Reef, which is growing. And it is one of the largest wet wipe mounds, measuring 50 metres wide, 70 metres long and more than one metre high. So, yeah, kind of it's quite a huge and disgusting image, but it's a massive problem. What has the Environment Secretary said about all this, um, Tess? Well, she has said that wet wipes containing plastic are unnecessary uh, and that they were polluting our environment, uh, but has praised her own, you know, the praised the government's actions on tackling plastic pollution, uh, namely this ban on microbeads and the plastic bag tax. Um, microbeads and rinse of personal care products were banned in the UK from, from January 2018 um, and a charge on plastic bags was introduced in 2015. Uh, so those things are in place, but yeah, that's that's what we've got from Teres Coffee. Do you guys buy plastic bags at the supermarket? You know, only when I've been neglectful of yeah, bringing try not to. my bag for life. Oh, I forgot how much a plastic bag was worth these days because I just don't use them. Mm. Oh, Halo is shining. Yeah, it's all right, Ben James. I should Parsons. <laughs> Time now for our moment of the week, where we reflect on something weird, fun, or just downright cool. Pippa, what was your moment of the week? So mine has to be after our chat this morning, James, where I was showing you my um, pictures of mushrooms from the weekend. They were fantastic pictures. (laughs) You sent me the trailer of the new film, The Web of Life, um, Mm. which is presented by Merlin Sheldrake, Mm. whose book I recently read, which is amazing, called Entangled Life. Um, I imagine listeners of Eco Chamber would really love that book. Absolutely. Ringing endorsement. Not sponsored, just an yeah. endorsement. <laughs> so yeah, that's got to be my moment of the week. I think it comes out um, towards the end of this year, so mm. I'll, um, I'll be excited to go see it. And Bjork's the narrator. Yeah, I saw that. I also saw she has done something around salmon farms, protesting mm. around salmon farms. Yes. So really, she I don't know if maybe she was doing this before, but she's clearly getting into the broad, environmental yeah. space. Broad she's range. on it. Cool. Tess? Uh, I think for me, it's got to be the, the family of five beavers released in Ealing yes, uh, yes. this week, uh, which we'll see in sort of an urban area of London. Uh, and Sadiq Khan, the mayor, went down. It's a great video of him. And he honestly, I mean, I wouldn't normally say this about a politician, but like he genuinely just looked so delighted. I had, do you know what? <laughs> I was going to not say it, but I was actually so pleased to see Sadiq Khan so happy. He, he was it made so me happy. happy. Yes, I know. Um and yeah, this, this these these weavers have been released. It's in a you know a closed uh, but large enclosure. Um, because you have to by law. Yes, because you have to by law because um, the kind of licensing for truly wild beavers isn't quite there yet. Um, uh, and it was just so like that it, the, it drew crowds and crowds to this this part of, um, kind of West London. Uh, and having you know, I grew up not massively far from there, so it was just really nice to see some you know proper nature uh, coming into the the city. Wicked, and it's just it just shows you how something like a beaver can tolerate being so close to urban settlements, mm. or we will find out. Yes, we will find out. Interested to see what it does to the environment because we know that beavers change the the places they live in, um, and what what will that mean in a, in a kind of urban sort of setting well yeah 
interesting one to watch. I, I saw a seal in the Thames once, so maybe what? we'll we'll see a beaver next. If they, wow. if they, beaver kind of esca- if they escape. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, um, and my moment of the week is another very cool animal, uh, the red kite. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a fan of the A34. If you ever just want to see red kites, just drive that down is the A34. They are just everywhere. That is true. Um, but the oldest red kite in Britain and Ireland was found in Carmarthenshire. Now, that was really cool. Now, my Welsh listeners, forgive me, it was spotted in Chrambeida in Carmarthenshire. Yeah? yeah. I'm getting nods. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, maybe. Um <laughs> It was found in July. The news has only recently broke. It was found in July. It was thought to be 26 years old. Wow. Bad news. Oh. We only know that because it collapsed and was unable to fly. So the RSPCA was called in to put it down. But it was ringed on the 20th of June, 1997. And this was the first and only report of it. So in all that time, no other birders had seen it or ringed it. Amazing. So it's just been flying around the British Isles. Ever since. Amazing. Evading everyone. Evading everyone. Good for yeah. this red kite. Yeah. Time now for our deep dive as we turn our attention to the waste trinity of carbon trading, incineration and landfill. Chiefly, I want to know if putting a carbon price on waste incineration will lead to an increase in landfilling. Pippa is my resident waste expert and ends, and she is here to help us listeners on our quest to find answers. So, of that triangle, Pippa, can you just explain to us the point and purpose of carbon trading? So, the principal idea is to limit the total amount of carbon that can be emitted from um, carbon polluting industries in order to drive down emissions. So, it's not a flat rate carbon tax, but yeah, the purpose is to kind of drive down carbon dioxide emissions. Okay, embedded in the object that you are disposing of. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Um, So the UK's post-Brexit emission trading scheme works on a cap and trade principle where a cap is set on the total amount of certain greenhouse gases that can be emitted by sectors covered by the scheme, such as aviation, for example. Um, And under the scheme, participants receive free allowances and or they can buy certain emission allowances at auction or on the secondary market where they can effectively trade with other participants. And I know that that the rules on free allowances are potentially changing for certain sectors like aviation. Um, but, but can you just make it easy for me to understand what how can you summarise carbon allowances? So you can kind of think of them as being a bit like permission slips from a government or from a governmental agency that allow a company to emit one tonne of CO2 equivalent, which can be used or traded for cash. Um, So these allowances reduce over time as the government attempts to kind of get closer to our net zero targets. But yeah, it's basically a way to kind of emit certain levels of CO2 on pay to emit more. And that's important to that we are bringing our own carbon trading scheme in line with our net zero commitments. Mm-hmm. So it's called the UK's Emission Trading Scheme, which I understand is uh, managed by the UK Emissions Trading Scheme Authority, which then is beholden to all our four governments. But waste incinerators do not apply to carbon trading. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So currently, um, waste incinerators or energy from waste plants aren't included in the Emissions Trading Scheme but that could all change. So um, in following a consultation, the um, Emissions Trading Scheme Authority published its consultation response, where it said that from 2028, 
energy from waste and incineration facilities will be included in the UK emissions trading scheme. Um, I, just important to note here that in the EU, it's already included. Okay. Um, so, yeah, this is kind of something that we're a little bit behind on, but we're working on. And we're sort of bringing ourselves in line to their their emissions yeah. trading. Okay. Has this move been welcomed by the sector? So overall, yes, it has. But there are kind of some concerns and reservations as as with any change. Um, it was described by the Environmental Services Association, which is the trade body representing the waste industry, as being, in quotes, the most significant regulatory intervention to the UK waste industry in a generation. So kind of to listeners, this might all sound like it's very kind of nitty gritty and minute details, but this policy does have the potential to have wide ranging impacts on our kind of waste sector and our recycling and how much waste we're producing and all the rest of it. Um, Georgia Elliott Smith, who is a managing director of a consultancy called Element 4, said that the move would boost recycling rates. And she said it would focus the minds on circularity and waste minimisation. But, you know, some people have said that this is long overdue. Um, Dominic Hogg said, you know, this was always a matter of when, not if. Um, And that was because a case for the tax on incineration has like been put forward some 20 years ago. So it's something that's been talked about for a long time and is kind of finally, actually, there's some progress. From what I understand, the problem with carbon pricing is that there is a worry that waste will get sent to landfill. Is is that true or is that false? So groups like the Environmental Services Association, which is this trade body representing the industry, They've kind of warned against this. And and their point is that if energy from waste or waste incineration becomes too expensive, it could lead to waste being sent to landfill because that's the cheaper, cheaper option. And obviously, that's not the point of this. The point is to kind of encourage recycling and encourage like better practice when it comes to our waste, not just dumping it in a landfill. But with that... Um, Jacob Haler, who's the executive director of this group, he told ENDS that they now support the inclusion of energy from waste in the UK emissions trading scheme, provided that complementary policy measures are also put in place to kind of prevent this landfill leakage, as it's been called. Okay, and what what would such a measure look like? So they've called for a comprehensive municipal waste landfill ban. Um, Whether this will happen, it's, you know, all a bit unknown at the moment, but that's what what they think is required. Okay, Um, to others, that point, might be academic is that right so yeah this point on landfill leakage is a bit contested and not everyone agrees with jacob Haler and the environmental services association on this so libby peak who's the head of resource policy at the think tank green alliance said that there is an incredibly low risk of waste being diverted to landfill um, and this is because she said that the government's intention is to only include fossil fuel derived emissions in the scheme such as those from burning plastic So this means that biogenic sources like paper, wood, card and food waste, which are those forms of waste that are already targeted by the landfill tax, will not incur any additional costs through the scheme. So for Peak, this this is kind of a missed opportunity. You know, she says emissions need to be reduced whether they're emitted from landfill or from incinerators. Um, And for emissions covered by the ETS, the Emissions Trading Scheme, there is no certainty that the biogenic carbon from waste that's incinerated be replaced by equivalent sequestrations, particularly with the timelines that are compliant with the net zero trajectory. Okay, so she wanted to go further. Yeah, exactly. You've touched upon it, 
But how might a carbon price encourage recycling? Mm. So the whole. So, firstly, I think it's important to state that um, around half of the emissions from incinerators come from plastics, so from burning plastics, and almost sixty percent of the waste that currently feeds incinerators is defined as being highly recyclable. Um, that's according to Georgia Elliott Smith from Element Four. Just to kind of say my source there. Um, so removing just a fraction of that material from going into incinerator instead being recycled would result in, you know, a lot like high levels of decarbonisation and less emissions and allow the UK to meet its recycling targets. So it's kind of in that way seen as a bit of a win-win. So I think that gives a bit of an overview of what the government is planning to do. Um, but I will just point out that the um, Emissions Trading Scheme Authority has said it's going to be publishing further consultations on its plans um, throughout the year. I think it said later in 2023 and no doubt in 2024 as well. So kind of the minute details of what this will actually look like are kind of still yet to be fine-tuned and no doubt we'll be writing about it on end. So keep an eye out. Pippa, thank you for joining me on the deep dive and thank you for explaining that to me. And that's it. On today's episode, I've learned that the MMO's MO is not the same as DEFRA's MO when it comes to moving around the civil service. That there's still a lot of grey when it comes to understanding Labour's plans for scrub. And Tony Juniper loves scrub. I've also learned that the UK may soon say goodbye to plastic wet wipes with an outright ban. And maybe we'll see the back of the Thames Great Wet Wipe Reef. And for our deep dive, we now know that the UK may soon need to adjust its thinking on incineration, from burn baby burn to carbon allowances. My thanks to Pippa Neal and Tess Collie for coming on to this week's episode of the Eco Chamber. We'd really love to hear from you listeners with your thoughts, views, opinions, criticisms, constructive please. And you can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on our Twitter socials using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.